Thank you. Please be seated. Text uh, for the sermon is taken from the epistle. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Uh, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind in Christ Jesus. Uh, and then the introit uh, for today, on a throne exalted I beheld in low a man's setting, whom a legion of angels worship, singing together. Behold, his rule and governance endureth to all ages. And then from the Holy Communion on page 81, and here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy and living sacrifice unto thee. That we and all others who shall be partakers of this holy communion may worthily receive the most precious body and blood of thy son Jesus Christ, be filled with thy grace and heavenly benediction, and made one body with him that he may dwell in us and we in him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. What I want to uh, <clears throat> consider this morning is the body. Uh, the uh, body's glory, its shame, its worth, its vigor, its virtue, and its weakness. Now, why do we starve our bodies one season and gorge them in another? And why do we caress our bodies one moment and then strike it the next? Walking downtown on the mall. With our family and friends, we turn to catch our reflection uh, in the shop windows. And we love that sight, uh, and yet some of us reflectively suck in our stomachs uh, at that sight uh, because our body can mean more than one thing. It can be embarrassing uh, as well as beautiful. Ironically, our bodies stir up our narcissism, and then the same bodies intrude and spoil our self-absorption. Our bodies offer happiness, but we know good and well that our bodies betray us. As I've said many times before, our hope waxes and wanes uh, uh, with our vitality and then sags in accord with sickness, sorrow, and with aging. So, why has God, and as you can see, this is an extension of, of some of the themes I preached on over Christmas, so why has God Almighty, God Almighty, who is spirit, who is a consuming fire, who as the Westminster Catechism rightly puts it, is without body, part, or passion, why has God committed himself to human flesh? Why has the second person of the Blessed Trinity, the eternal word of the Father, why has God entered into our world as one of us? And not only that, uh, but as you see, as we continue... Uh, when he ascended to the Father after his death and resurrection, the second person of the Blessed Trinity returned to the abode of God, changed and changed forever because he, re he entered into the abode of God as a human being as well as the second person of the Blessed Trinity. St. Paul and all of the other apostles and the whole church, ancient and modern, agree that God has committed himself to materiality, and in particular, he has committed himself to the material substance of our human bodies. And as I have just suggested, uh, what is yet more spectacular, it's stunning, is that the word of the Father, the Son of God himself, is committed to human flesh 
to be co-eternal with the divinity. So what does that mean? Our Lord, this is what it means, our Lord did not merely use human flesh as a means to an end. He wasn't merely born uh, to provide a body to be punished and ill-treated and tortured and then put to death. That's part of the story, and even that part, the way I just phrased it, is a bit crooked. It's not exactly right. The incarnation is not an example of utilitarianism. Uh, and Jesus did not throw away his flesh once his earthly work was finished. As I've said, when he ascended to the Father 50 days after the resurrection, he did not, as a hymn says, escape the prison of the human body. Uh, not at all. He actually became flesh. He died in his flesh upon the cross, and three days later he was resurrected from the dead, body and all. And 40 days after that, he ascended to the Father, body and all. So apparently, the body isn't a prison house to be escaped from. God loves flesh. He's chosen to anchor his life in flesh forever. And with uh, this fact, as I've alluded already and said, the unthinkable has occurred so that the immutable, unchangeable, invisible God has become visible and has changed. He has entered our mutability, our changeableness uh, by what theologians call the hypostatic union. What's a hypostatic union? Well, the hypostatic, this is what it means. When Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary, without forfeiting his divinity, he received from Mary true human nature. And it became God's human nature. He didn't merely clothe himself with divinity. Uh, he did not uh, use the shell of human body to mask his true identity. Not at all. He became a real human being. And so the church teaches that the person of Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human. And he is flesh uh, this very day and in his flesh. He takes his, feeding, his fitting place at the right hand of the Father in heaven, just as the introit uh, indicates today. As I've said many times before, a man, a human being, uh, in the flesh is seated upon, uh, at this moment, the throne of the universe. Not some concept, not some idea, not a spirit, but a man, Mary's son, a person who, as I said this morning and said before, has a navel. And I don't mean that. I'm not being cheeky or trying to be funny, but I mean quite literally that he has a navel because he was born of a woman, and yet he was true God. Are you all with me? Everybody's had their coffee, <laughs> including me. This separates us from all other religions since the central project of other religions is to escape forever, quote, the prison of the body. Our God-given project is to love our bodies as the temple of the Holy Ghost and to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. 
That has little, if anything, to do with merely being moral or a good citizen. Though it is true that the citizen of heaven will love the true, the good, and the beautiful, and she will be the best of friends, loyal and true, living according to the pattern of Christ her God, because our God-given project in life is to be like God, and that is achieved, and that is most beautifully, perfectly seen in worship. That is our purpose for being. That's why we're here today. Perhaps this is exactly where we should begin with the remarkable fact that St. Paul considers the human body a worthy object of sacrifice to God. The human body, Paul says, is a sacrifice that God delights in, a sacrifice that he would not rebuff as he rebuffed cane potage of leafy greens and roots. But understand this, we present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice we do not uh, and are not uh, expecting it to be all burnt up and annihilated on some altar. Sacrifice does not mean annihilation. I think that we think that uh, at, at, this, at this point in our lives and in, uh, certainly uh, in, in the West, maybe in the East too for all I know. Uh, but uh, sacrifice and annihilation are not the same thing. God does not delight in taking the sacrificial victim and rendering it into a state of non-existence. Neither God nor his people are nihilist. We have an offertory. All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. What really happens uh, in a biblical sacrifice is that we offer up a gift to God. But the gift we offer up to God is a gift God has already given us. For example, in the Old Testament, uh, the gift offered at the altar may have been a dove or a lamb. Well, God made the doves, made the lambs. We didn't make them. Furthermore, in the Old Testament, if you made a sacrifice like an animal, let's say, a lamb, and that lamb was killed by the priest and cut up and roasted, uh, at, on the altar and then portions of it would have been given back to you to take home to your family. A portion of it would be given to the priest and a portion of it would be left on the altar. But not merely just to be burned up. That may be what you see happening with your eyes but that is not the uh, 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 Hebrew understanding of what was happening there. What was happening there is that that was a portion that belonged to God and it was being offered up to God. Are you, do you see what I'm saying? Are you with me? The sacrifice rendered the life of that sacrifice up to God in smoking and sweet-smelling savor. So there's no nihilism here at all. But there is community. There are three. The family, Israel, and God all sharing a meal together. But that's not the end of it either. So we offer these gifts up to God, and what happens? God receives the gifts. I've told you this story before. I'm going to tell you this story again. I'll probably tell you this story in the future because I like it. 
and it's and it's true, and it illustrates uh, this this point. This is pretty close to what happened when I was a little boy, and probably with m- most of you as well. Uh, when I was a little boy, my father would give me money to buy my mother a birthday gift, and I remember a specific instance when I told Dad I wanted to buy my mother a birthday gift, and he said, "Well, come on and." We got in the car, and we drove down to the Five and Dime, and he gave, me, he gave me some money, and I picked out a gift for my mother, and then we took it home, and when I gave it to my mother, she treated it just like it was a gift from me. Well, okay, in a way it was, but as a matter of fact, it was the gift that they had given me that I then had taken and given back to them. Are you with me? This is what happens in a sacrifice. Uh, So uh, we take uh, what God has already given us and we offer it back to him in some form of another and he receives the gift and then something unexpected happens. Something you didn't expect would happen happens. The gift becomes Eucharist. The gift is transformed, transmuted. And, and, And then he gives it back to us. And so... In the Holy Communion, uh, what happens is we, we give him the, the gifts of bread and wine that he's created and given to us. He receives the gifts from us, which is what you expect to happen. But then he gives the gifts back to us, transformed into the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. But not only that. Uh, in the Holy Communion, we not only present the bread and the wine, the elements on the altar to be transformed, uh, we also present ourselves, our souls, and our bodies to be offered up to God. We're offering back, listen to what I'm saying here, we're offering back to God the most precious gift of all, which is the gift of our very existence, our very being. At that moment in the liturgy, page 88 in the Book of Common Prayer, Father Sean will be praying this and we'll be praying this together to present ourselves, our souls and bodies to God as a living sacrifice. What happens then is it when we donate our very existence to God, you donate your existence, your being to God as a living sacrifice, not only are the gifts of bread and wine on the altar made Eucharist, but you're made Eucharist as well. That's what I want you to understand. Now, metaphorically so, not just metaphorically, actually metaphysically so too, but not it, you don't become the body and blood of Christ, but you are transformed. Uh, by a miracle and in fact you are Eucharized and just keep this in mind that you may be the only Eucharist that some people will ever see here's something else very important uh, which I've talked about many times before we do not present ourselves our souls and bodies as a congregation of individual sacrifices that is not what happens Yes, we make a plurality of presentations. You present your body, uh, 
you, I present my body. We all do that individually, uh, uh, offering up our whole life to God. But when God receives our individual multiple offerings, he makes us one. And that's what you need to see, is at that moment a miracle. This is why you come to church. This is why we come to church. This moment is why we come to church and participate in the Mass. Because at this moment, we're joined to Christ and we're made one body with him for a specific purpose. And that specific purpose is for the offering up of the blessed sacrament for the life of the world. This is the priesthood of the believer. We begin as we, but we end as one living sacrifice. Separate grains of wheat, broken down and folded into one loaf. This is what the Mass refers to as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. At this moment, in this congregation present, God receives our individual oblations, our several offerings of self, soul, and body, and he makes us one living sacrifice. Uh, uh, and, and we are the body of Christ already, but at this moment in the Mass, we become the body of Christ as the pre we enter into our job as the royal priesthood. That's what's happening. And that's why we come to church. Because you get to participate in that. You get to actually participate in that. And it requires us, too. I mean, when it's most perfectly done, you have the clergy. Uh, it's as though the body of Christ has two loans. The clergy, the order of clergy, and the order, order of laity. And so in the Mass, the two come together. Uh, the two lungs of the body of Christ come together to breathe blessing, benediction, finality, beauty, truth, and goodness into the whole wide world. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.